All right. So hello, everyone, and welcome to the AI Stories podcast. I'm Neil Lizer. I'm a data scientist at Iwaka, and I will be your host. So today, our guest is Serg Massey. Serg first did a bachelor at Latin American University of Science and Technology. And after that, he actually worked for like 15 years in web and product development. In 2018, he actually decides to leave this world and does a master in data science at Illinois Institute of Technology. He is now actually a climate and agronomic data scientist at Syngenta, a leading agriculture company helping to improve global food security. But that's not everything. Serg also wrote a book on interpretable machine learning, and we'll actually talk about this at the end of the episode. So hi, Serg. How is it going? I'm really excited for this conversation. How are you today? I'm good. I'm very good. Thank you. So as I mentioned, you did this, well, you started by doing a lot of web development, product development for like around 15 years, something like that. And at one point, you actually decide to focus more on data science. So how did you get into the world of data and AI, essentially? Well, uh, data was always there. The thing is, I started early on in, in, in the web world. I started making websites, uh, I think in like 95 or 96. Okay. Um, that's 26 years ago. Uh, I was really young, of course, uh, but I, I started working on that. And yeah, the first time I did like a proper data-driven website was like in 1999 or 98. And in 99, yeah, in 99 was the first one that used SQL. So I've, I've dealt with SQL since then. I know... Ever since then, uh, I mean, I'm talking like maybe 10 or 12, maybe even 15 years ago, you started to come up with tools. Uh, you know, there were more tools in web development that abstracted the SQL layer. Mm -hmm. So people didn't have to necessarily know SQL. But I never engaged with that. I always used SQL. And, um, and, and, and the kind of websites I, I work with were usually very data hungry. Because for the longest time in that in that portion of my career, I've, I've worked with in, in online gambling, mm -hmm. which is also a very interesting use case for data science because it's um, there's you know everything is probabilities, there's 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 a lot going on there, and so I, I learned from that quite a bit uh, about you know uncertainties about also also from a technical end well uncertainties certain statistics that are very common. In the, in the betting world, as well as the, the technical end, which is how to deal with large volumes of data. So I, I learned a lot about big data and ETL in that prior portion of my career, you know, like starting from 2005, I was 2006, I was pushing the envelope in this area a little bit, you know, so like the places I work for, they, they, they wanted to be ahead of the curve. So, you know, like, Before YouTube existed, I, I was already dealing with streaming video and things like that. And, and so that relates a lot to data because I started to learn of how data was being applied in the business I was working in. There started to be a lot of data being accumulated about users. So there was a need for business intelligence. And I didn't even know business intelligence was a term 
But I guess it was one of the hats I would wear where I worked because uh, nobody else had that visibility to all these different kinds of data, web analytics data, CRM data, you know, ERP data, you know, who tied everything together. Before that, you had all these disconnected reports. So if if you wanted a report that unified the whole thing, marketing with sales, with web analytics, I was your guy. So, so basically, you had during your web development career, you already had some experience with dealing with data because no one else in the company was doing this, if I understand well. Yeah. And, and it was, as I said, that was part of the process because I entered so early into the web field. Okay. Had I entered like five years ago, I don't think that's an experience for a web developer these days. They don't have that visibility to the data. The data has been abstracted from mm-hmm. the process of building a website. But it wasn't for me then. Um, there were still a lot of things that were very manual and art- artisanal, if you will, about making a website, even, even as we started to adopt more frameworks. Yeah. So there was kind of a boom of frameworks in the late 2000, 2000s, like 2008, 2009. And so all these frameworks started to appear and I started to adopt them in my team. That's when actually I started to transition more towards mm-hmm. the analytics side. So I started to do more BI, even though I didn't have that title. Okay. Um, so I managed my team. I was a kind of, a, I was the director of web development. And so I directed the, the, the development part, but I also did some BI so there was that. And, and why, why, why do you, in 2018, decide to do a master? Like you had worked for a long time. I mean, you were also in the data field. As you mentioned, you had some experience with data. So why do you decide at some point to do a master and focus on data science only? Well, because there is, well, there's two aspects to that. One is there as as much as I could have called myself a data scientist because I I knew SQL, I knew Python, I I knew ETL, I, I I did data wrangling. You know, I had by then, by 2018, I had created a startup that had machine learning in it. So I knew some machine learning. I, I can't say I, I used a lot of it, but I I had all these skills. And so I could have said I was a data scientist, but there's there's a certain like uh I don't know if to call it elitism or something, mm. but people look at your resume and they're like, oh, web developer, webmaster, the, you know, where, where have you been a data scientist? They, they don't see behind the titles yeah. and yeah. realize you've been working with data all along. In fact, even my own, in the company I was working in uh, up to 2016, I've been working with poker. I knew a lot about data, but, you know, they, they started to hire business intelligence people. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I, I, I felt like if I contributed on that side, I wasn't taken seriously as, anymore. So it, it, because they're a proper business intelligence person, I'm just someone, you know, that is in charge of their website. So it kind of felt that I, it would push me, it, I would be pushed, pushed aside if I didn't, you know, have a, a title as a data scientist. But, wh- um, but, why, but why data and, science? Like... Did, and that because you because I love data okay because that, you love okay data. and that's that's the second thing the second reason I took the before I go on to that mm-hmm. the second reason I 
I, I went for a data scientist master's because I truly had gaps. Because I had learned about data the way I had learned about data. I hadn't done any, you know, besides, you know, since high school, pretty much, I hadn't done hypothesis testing. I, I didn't know a lot of things about statistics. I, I had never done any computer vision projects. You know, intuitively, I understood a lot of these things because I had many hobbies and I had done uh, a lot of graphic design and 3D modeling, but that's more like computer graphics, but not computer vision. So I, I had to take courses in that. So I, I felt like I needed to fill those gaps, right? To kind of call my own, you know, imposter syndrome as well. Okay. Okay. So there was that. But also the third reason that underpinned that was because I, I did... I had been moving towards data for a while. I just hadn't realized it. Mm-hmm. You know, I hadn't heard about business intelligence till, you know, 2013. I didn't even know it existed. You know, I didn't know about data scientists, data science as a field till 2015 or 16, you know, like, so it, it took me a while to realize, you know, this is what I'm trying to do anyway. People kept seeing me you know, as a web guy. Mm-hmm. And you wanted, where to I thought I could, you wanted to and change this. Exactly. And where I thought I could provide more value was as a data guy. Because whenever I, I had been freelancing for a long time, and whenever I had a, a new client come to me and say, hey, I have a website. I want this and that. I say, well, what you want, your, what your problem with your current website is not the design. It's that it doesn't have the good, a good funnel for conversion. So you have to do conversion optimization mm-hmm. by doing all these A-B tests and everything. So I was talking to them in language of data, not in the language of websites. So to, to me, it was like, you know, like so strange that mm-hmm. people consider me a web guy because where I thought I could provide most value was in a completely different area. Okay, that, that makes sense. And so... You mentioned like, I love data because I love data, but what do you like so much about data science? I mean, obviously data is good, but why, why do you think that's such an interesting, I don't know, for example, day-to-day job or something like that? What do you like so much about this? What I like about that is it's, it's ability to drive decisions. I think it's, it's always what's, kind of uh, drawn me to data. For instance, I can have any any big decision. You know, like for instance, even the decision I did to take go go to the university I went to to get my master's. How did I come to that decision? I I extracted information using web scrapers for all the different universities that had master's programs at that moment for data science. I collected ratings the amount of students, their admission rate, whatever I could find. I put it in one spreadsheet. I, I collected information about the cities there were. I, I put it in the same spreadsheet as a different column. You know, I collected information about what was the average salary for a data scientist in the places that where they were, you know, et cetera. So I, I had this massive spreadsheet with all the information. And next, what I had to do was somehow figure a way to rank them. And and the top ranked ones where I had most likelihood to be admitted for, those were the ones I applied to. 
Cool. So you should actually so, be an advisor for master, well, for bachelor students who want to find a master. That's, well, that's a great thing to do, I, I think. Well, that's, that's the way I've always approached problems. I've been using spreadsheets for, you know, 20 plus years. And I've always, I mean, maybe in a less sophisticated way, but I've always used that. And, and that's how I came about even applying to jobs. That's how I came up. And, and uh, back when I was working as a webmaster, I also would prescribe, you know, decisions based on quantifiable measures like that. So I would say to the marketing manager, these are the affiliates, your top affiliates. And they would say, how, how do you know these are the top affiliates? Because these are the rates and this is ranked by this and that and this other thing. And this is what, you know, I would come up with some kind of measure. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that data first approach is not only intuitive, but it's also what should supersede a lot of the, the ways business is conducted this way these days. Not only business, but also people's own very own ambitions, uh, not ambitions, uh, own kind of instincts. Because yeah. the reason I, I think that is because my, my startup just to rewind a bit, in 2016, I, I quit my job as the webmaster for a uh, a large online poker office, and it was a fairly good job. I, I I managed the team that did all the web stuff, but I I kind of wanted to create something new. So I I thought I had this idea for a startup, and you know my family kept pushing me and say it's a good idea, go off and do it. And so I, what happened was I, I filled in a form to apply to a program at Harvard to have my startup incubated and it got admitted, you know, <laughs> and, and that was, and so Amazing. I just, I dropped everything I was doing and it just went to the incubator. And that was a, a great experience. It taught me a lot of things. And what I, I realized there about data science was, you know, that you you can't well you first need a lot of data points to make a decision so i first i couldn't i couldn't i had this idea but i didn't know if people really wanted it so i had to create the data points meaning that i had to create questionnaires go out on the street talk to people ask them questions and that was a good starting point the other thing was after all, my, my idea was all about this. It was all about people's perceptions of things. Because, you know, sometimes you create a product and, and, and the product itself changes people's mind, you know. And this was that sort of product, which made it kind of difficult because <laughs> I haven't told you what it is. Yeah, Basically, that, that, it was, was, that was my question. What it is and... <laughs> okay, so the whole point of the product was a search engine that disrupts decision-making. So in precisely for things to do for fun. So supp- suppose it's Friday night, you don't have, you have no idea what to do. Mm-hmm. You can go to your, 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 whatever it is, your like default setting, Netflix, or, you know, I'll go out to uh, a place I like, and I always go to, and you go to it because it's convenient because it's, it's close. And because you like it. it, it might not be the best place to go to, but it's like, you know, whatever. Or maybe a friend recommended an event um, and said, this is, this is great. You should go to this. 
But that, those are very few data points. You truly don't know what's around you. You're, you're not doing anything as spontaneous. You're not doing things, you know, serendipitously as some people used to do more of. Like before mobile phones, people would learn about events because they saw a flyer outside and they're like, oh, hey, do this. But now they have to check the rating of this and this and see how well it's ranked before they come to a decision. That over-optimization leads to uh, dissatisfaction. It's been proven to lead to dissatisfaction. So you you end up doing things because you have a very high expectation of them. They don't meet those expectations. And then on the other hand, the, the, the few things that surprise you that you end up doing, they surprise you because, you know, you didn't, you didn't over-optimize them. You, you just went and, and you didn't have an expectation and it, obviously it exceeds it. So I'm trying to create some of that. So how do I do that with a phone? You just imagine you just shake your phone and it gives you like a, a roulette, like a few options. And you swipe left and right to them, like as you do in Tinder. Exactly. And, so it's, uh, it's a Tinder of, of things to do. I guess, activities. Exactly. Exactly. So I wanted to create some of that. So that's how I came about with that. Uh, obviously, it's not completely random. There is a fair level of personalization going in. Okay. And that, that, that way of looking into decision-making and data is kind of part of my philosophy that people cannot be entirely trusted on making decisions on their own because they, they have their own biases. They have their own instincts. They're kind of, as you grow older, you kind of set in your ways and you program yourself to be a certain way and you explore less. So therefore you learn less. And as your brain learns less, you, you, it solidifies. And therefore it kind of, it's like a self-fulfilling, it's like a cycle, a downward cycle where you end up, you know, all that adventure you had before all the thing, it's become smaller and smaller and smaller. And, and that's not a good thing. So you have to disrupt that and search engines and, and ranking sites and all these things don't help you with that. Just to go back to the previous point, like essentially data helps you make better decisions and you were very interested in using, essentially using data to drive decisions, I guess. And it's, it's, I find it very interesting that you talk about your startup and, you know, you can even use data to make decisions in the real life, uh, for example, for your master. I, mm-hmm. I'm always wondering if there is a way to use data, you know, to optimize everything you do. For example, the next best thing that I should do this hour is work on this. And then uh, after work, the best thing that I should do is, I don't know, do sport or uh, to oh, okay. meet a friend, something like that. I'm wondering if one day, and at one point it's also scary, right? If an algorithm just tells you, you should do this, you should do this. But I'm just wondering if there is something optimum that I can do at any moment, you know, now you need to sleep. Now you should meet a friend. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think I, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I think there's, there's a combination of things. I think for the big, big decisions of your life, yeah, definitely optimize them. It's, it's worth it. But for the smaller things like, uh, you know, should I buy you know, this lampshade or this mm-hmm. other one? Should I go to my friends to this bar or another one? I mean, it's, it's almost better to leave it up to chance. You'll be less disappointed 
and more yeah. surprised. And, 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 you know, for other things, as you were saying, if, if, what kind of exercise you should do, if you have a goal, if your goal is to, you know, you know, gain this much muscle or lose this much weight, then I, I, and, and you're committed to that goal, then it makes sense to optimize. But if you're just a casual person trying to, you know, try to make the best of their, their, their time, I mean, I just, I, I also think it's good to leave some things up to chance, to adventure, to whatever. Just don't, yeah. don't over-optimize. It, it's, it's a lot of effort no. for, for people. And, I, and I even agree. if an app does it for them, if an app doesn't for them, they'll be damned if they give you a good advice. You know, like there, there's never a way to please the customer, I think, in those scenarios. I, I, yeah, I think for big decisions or if you have big goals, it makes sense to maybe have a tool. Sometimes you don't even need, but yeah, it makes sense. I think looking at data often makes you, leads you to better decisions because obviously you think more about what happened in the past, the outcomes and yeah it just makes you do good decisions i agree that for small things it's still good to be surprised otherwise it's just a sad world right an algorithm tells you do this do this do that but it's just something yeah i was thinking uh, yeah maybe it will happen for some people maybe some people will be happier like this i don't think so um but yeah so going back well yeah, that was quite a good introduction on why you like data science, how you get into the world of data. At the moment, I mentioned you're doing data science at Syngenta. So I want to talk a bit about this. First of all, can you maybe explain what is Syngenta, what the company is doing, how does it work? Yeah, Syngenta has like two main parts to it, as a lot of agribusiness companies do. They have a crop protection side, which is the one that does a lot of herbicides, uh, insecticides, fungicides, so on. You know, so these are chemicals that that are very much needed to produce crops at scale to feed the world, basically. And then you you have another side, which is through plant selection, optimizing seeds. So that those are like the two main sides. There's, there's a third part to it, which is the part, and much smaller, it's where I work, which is the digital agronomy. So the digital agronomy is about providing tools to the farmer to improve the crop practice. And, and crop practice is things like deciding when to, when to uh, crop, uh, when to plant things, when to harvest them, when to spray certain things, how to spray what fertilizer to use and what seeds to use. It's, it's, uh, it's a big field, crop practice. So we provide digital tools to the farmer so they can do that. Sometimes it comes in the form of a phone app. Other times it's, it's more like uh, something they run on a computer. In, in some companies, they, they're focused on, okay, tools for the, for the tractor, you know? And, and that, that comes to another sub-area of, digital agronomy, which is uh, precision agriculture. So the precision agriculture comes into, okay, we're, we're going to tell them exactly where to spray, you know, fungicide okay. versus spray everything fungicide. And, and that's, that's good for the environment because it means, you know, you're, you're not, you're producing less runoff. 
and, and runoff is bad. And, you know, and I'm not explaining what that is, that that's when you have chemicals and, and since, you know, and they're going to end up in a stream somewhere. So you, you want to want to surgically place the, this, uh, this, um, uh, these chemicals in the right spots where they're most needed. So you, you may have a very big uh, farm, but uh, you know, all the, all the soil in this farm is different in different places. There's maybe a different topography. Some part is a higher and some part is lower. So it's important to know where to, okay. you know, what, where to prescribe different things. So yeah, that's, that's, the basics of what we do. So, so can you maybe dive a bit deeper into the AI part of this? Like where does AI come into play in order to help farmers? Where would you use AI, for example? Can you give a few examples of where you would use okay. AI in, in this sector? It's used in it's many, many areas. It's agenda. It's, it's used in, in the seed component to decide what are the best seeds. The, the genetics of the plant, they're, they're able to create using even generative models, new prototypes of new plants, entire new kinds of, of tomatoes the world has never seen before. And then you have on the, on the crop protection side, you have them doing the same thing with, with the chemicals that are sprayed, optimizing these chemicals, making new variants of them, testing them. Uh, so that that's for those two sides. For the digital agronomy, which is the part where I work, we use it in many other ways. We we have models to predict disease, to predict plant growth, to know when it's growing or how it's growing. We have also ones that are plant phenotyping. So they're they're like uh, computer vision models that can detect what kind of plants if there's a weed in the ground. For, and these are more like precision agriculture applications. You have also have sat- ones that are remote sensing, like satellite images. So you can you can look at an image f- from above and see if the the plant health is good, if they're the right amount of green. Maybe there's some other things you can tell if if there's not a, an, they're not they're they're suffering from water stress, so they're they're not being watered enough, or they're having a problem with. Uh, uh, nutrients. There's there's some things you can tell. Right now, we have other applications that use other tools, such as LIDAR and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. I can go into too much detail, but the idea is to give the farmer enough to, to be able to make all the decisions they need to do, whether it's anticipate disease and mitigate it, whether it's uh, anticipate other kinds of plant stress, you know, nutrients deficiencies and so forth. Or it's it's unusual weather. They're going to get like a, a unusual amount of cold, so they must prepare the plants for that. There, there are also things they can do to to anticipate all kinds of pests, like insects. So we can tell because you know if if a farm is located within vicinity of a lot of forest, they might get a certain kind of insect infestation. Mm-hmm given certain, um, you know, like uh, propensities, you know, of the area or of the weather. If, if it's very humid, they could get that insect and it could be devastating to the, to the farm. So they might, they might want to know when the conditions are there 
to have these insects or have fungus or et cetera. So we, we, we help the farmer that way. Okay. No, that makes sense. It's, it's kind of a sector that I'm not very familiar with. And I think it's very interesting to know that you're using computer vision or like even advanced methods, you know, for agriculture. Like I would have thought agriculture is not really digitalized and uh, yeah, still old school. It's not really a field that I know well, but yeah, I didn't know that there is also, even in agriculture, there is so much AI. Do you, what kind of in general, what kind of models do you use? Does it tend to be like very complex deep learning models or do you prefer to have simple models that you can interpret? Uh, you've written a book on interpretable ML. So that's that's why I, I asked the question. Yeah, we use, we use both. It both. depends on the problem. I mean, when you have computer vision, you can't use a linear model, mm -hmm. you know, as you can imagine. We we also have problem. We have some situations where it's, it makes more sense to use uh, for, say, like a multivariate time series problem. It might make more sense to use an LSTM than, than a simpler statistical model. And then we also have a lot of use cases where, like, just simply the, the complexity of the data, the variety, it just it makes sense to use, you know, maybe a, a gradient boosted decision tree instead of uh, a linear model. Um, in agriculture for the longest time, I'm talking 20, maybe 30 or four years, there've been a, a lot of use of, of linear regression and, and to some extent logistic regression in, in agriculture. So uh, agronomists are well-versed on, on this sort of thing. They, they talk about, you know, coefficients and, and, and certain like very simple models where you, you take certain thing, multiply something mm -hmm. else and you get some, you know, a certain amount of yield. So these are well known amongst the agronomists. We're, we're trying to push the boundaries because the reality is like on the ground is a lot more complex, mm -hmm. especially now with global warming. It's a lot harder to anticipate certain things, you know, and by that, I mean a certain amount of plant growth or a certain amount of uh, a crop yield is a lot harder to predict well, given the lot of variations we're experiencing with weather. So there was a time, I'm talking like 200 years ago, like, and, and even 50 years ago, which is very common for a farmer to hang out with a, a book called The Farmer's Almanac. I don't know if they have those in the UK, but in, in Canada and the US, very common to have a farmer's almanac and the farmer's almanac comes with, uh, you know, uh, like a timetable of when to crop certain things, mm -hmm. uh, certain, certain, you know, wheat or barley or uh, plant, when to plant it and, and when to expect a harvest and, and when to expect cer certain like milestones in the growth of the plant. So this is very common. The, these things are completely outdated in this day and age because mm -hmm. of global warming. You know, it, it's just impossible to keep track with all these things. And, and also there's a lot of grounds been because of have been depleting uh, of their nutrients because of soil erosion, because uh, farmers have been tilling their ground over and over again. And so also that contributes a lot. How That's interesting. How do you deal with this? I, I have two things. One is climate change, which I guess is quite difficult to predict even. Um, Maybe now with models and because we're aware of this, maybe it's easier, but I mean, how do you deal with this? And the second thing is COVID. Like 
was there something, did something change in your data because of COVID? Like I'm working in a no. risk company, so COVID <laughs> disrupted us a lot, obviously. But agriculture, I don't know, maybe because people stay at home, like data change more. They are eating, I don't know, more. They are cooking more at home because of the lockdown. And so farmers have more work. I, I was just wondering if something changed with COVID. Uh, only, only like the supply and demand side. Uh, I don't work on that side. Okay. But of course, cool. like uh, what, what happened to farmers was certain varieties, like there's certain varieties of wheat that are used for pasta, you know, others for, you know, bread and others to feed animals, you know, the same goes for a lot of different plants. So what farmers have had to deal with, with COVID is like the, the crops that were used primarily to, for, for, for restaurants have been, have to repurpose for other means, mm -hmm. you know, so they've had to work around with that. And, uh, I, it, the, the, you know, the ways they deal with those problems are different, but they don't really impact. Okay. Okay. Uh, my, uh, where I work only to the extent that it means that farmers are going to need different kinds of seeds for the next season, or they're, they're going to use different kinds of products. So I'm sure it has disrupted like, um, like the sales forecasting side of the business, but it, it hasn't disrupted, you know, the business in any other way. Okay, um, that's or, good. L lucky, lucky for you then that you still have good data. And and what about this climate change? Um, how do you how do you deal this with that or also like extreme events? You know, I guess in farming you can have extreme events. I don't know if this uh, this is something that you're also interested in. Yeah, like for instance, the, the, there was flooding in Germany. Was that last year? I think. Yeah, it was last year. There was flooding in Gen Germany, a lot of it. And yeah, it, it does it does impact the, the, the ability to for, for models to predict yields and, and growth and disease and all sorts of things because this level of humidity is not something we when well humidity if you could call it precipitation is not something you anticipate mm -hmm. uh, necessarily. It might be like a one in a hundred years event or fifty years or thirty years, and, and we don't have enough data to support something like that. So I mean, but farmers understand if 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 there's going to be like, a, a, you know, like this sort of event, they understand that the models aren't going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. um, they're they're meant for other uh, other kinds of events, and and that's more on like the because I, I work in agronomy, you know, and climate is a big part of 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 you know it, it makes a lot of the data I work with usually, but I I don't I don't I'm not a a climate modelist, mm -hmm. uh, a model, modeler. I don't model climate, you know. Uh, so there's, there's that. I don't have to worry about that. I use other, other companies' forecasts for weather and just hope that they're good. Uh, yeah, they're, okay. they're the state of the art forecast, but you know they can always go wrong. Okay. Okay. Interesting. No. Very. Okay. So you, you rely on them, and obviously there are extreme events. But if those happens, I mean. Yeah, your models cannot be perfect, at least not yet, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I now want to move to, we discussed a bit about interpretable machine learning, but you wrote a book on this topic. So I want to focus a bit on this. First of all, can you maybe just explain very simply 
what is interpretable machine learning? I don't know if all our listeners are familiar with this concept. So yeah, what does it mean essentially? Well, it's it's a toolbox and a mindset wrapped into one. It's the idea that you you ought to not only uh, focus on you know getting the best predictive performance of the model, but figuring out why it went well, why it went wrong, what kind of explanations you can get for the decisions that were made by the model, and uh, where are the gaps in the models? Reliability, performance, fairness, a collection of concerns that you could have with the model with don't have necessarily to do with accuracy by themselves. Because predictive performance on its own, is, you know, it's usually measured in aggregate. You know, mm-hmm. say, well, this is the ag- accuracy or this is the RMSC or whatever. And it's it's an average. Over, know? yeah, over thousands of data points or millions of data points. Exactly, exactly. But it doesn't tell you the whole story, which is, you know, is one segment of your data points being disadvantaged, mm-hmm. you know, that could lead to unfairness. Is it expected to work well? you know, in, in out-of-sample cases. Say it's images and the images were noisy, would it still hold true? So there you're talking about, you know, maybe robustness or adversarial robustness problems. So you have to, there's a whole sort of things that you have to look into that, you know, you would have are desirable properties in a model if they are to be trustworthy. And these are consistency, reliability, fairness, you know, uh, uh, transparency to the extent that it's possible for that model. It's all about trustworthiness. It's not a necessarily for, for because it's called interpretable machine learning. People think, okay, purely like interpretation, explanation, and, and they're, they're thinking transparency, just give me why this model is doing this. But it goes beyond that. There's just so many different levels to it. It's, yeah, you're, you're, Everything, everything is something that requires interpretation and explanation, but it's not just knowing why the model does what it does or how it does it. It's, it's also about understanding what are the pros and cons of that model. What are, the, what are its vulnerabilities and, and what are the, the good parts about it? What is it doing right? And, and you, if you go look into this, you might find out that the model is is right for the wrong reasons. And that's something people don't realize. It could be 99.9% accurate, but you could have data leakage mm-hmm. or you could have, it. it's looking at the wrong part of the picture and that's why it's right, you know? And so what does it matter? Down. Yeah. Yeah, like for instance, there's a famous case of, you know, these um, this model that was that to detect wolves versus dogs. The wolves tended to have like a snowy background, mm-hmm. so that's why I thought it there were wolves. So <laughs> you, yeah. you can have cases like that. So you you don't you don't realize about that till you you interpret the model. So, so so is it essentially making sure that the model does what you want it to do, essentially? Yeah, yeah. That I mean, you won't make it think like a person. Mm-hmm. But you wanted to approximate human thinking uh, to the extent that you can do through associational means. 
And what I mean about that is uh, with machine learning, like most of machine learning has absolutely no causal component. It's all based on correlations. And, and that's, that's a bad thing, but it's so far till, till people start adopting causal modeling, it's the best we can do with machine learning. So what we can do with machine learning is interpret it to make sure that it aligns with our thought process, you know, which is, okay, how would we make this decision? And because the model can learn some really counterintuitive things. And it's, I'm not faulting machine learning as a whole. I'm not saying they're crap. What I'm saying is it, it finds things that would surprise us about data because it's not, it's not possible for a human to look at, you know, I don't know, like a million data points and say, okay, let's, it, there's a reason we do machine learning to begin with, which is the problem is incomplete. Okay. We, the, the machine learning fills in those gaps with the problem, but the problem is still incomplete. We still don't understand the problem and, and we're leaving the machine learning to come up with a solution. So if we look at the model and understand it, we can fill in those gaps and start understanding the problem and the solution better. So it's an iterative process for which we can actually improve the problem, the, 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 the model. And, and while doing that, we can understand those gaps. And, and so it's, it's like, for instance, with this, this wolf and dog thing, you know, if you ask a person, what's the difference between a wolf and the dog? What would they say? You know, bigger fangs, pointier ears. What is it that makes, uh, it's, it's really hard to make that description. So it's, it's, it's not something you could probably, you wouldn't be able to do it with if, if and else statements. There's a reason it's not a deterministic problem. So it's good that we're doing it with deep, we're, we would be solving that problem with deep learning. But on the other hand, we, we have to be able to understand how it's solving it so we can improve it. So why do you write this book then? I mean, I can see the way you're talking about it, that you're passionate about the subject. But yeah, why, why did you write, decided to write this book? Well, because I, I couldn't believe there was, I mean, my, my book was like the third book written on this topic for practitioners. I couldn't believe there wasn't enough for it because for me, it was even, even when I started the master's, of data science. Mm -hmm. I renew this was a topic I liked. And the reason I knew it was because when I had a startup and I had my co-founders or, you know, potential investors or like beta testers tell me, you know, this is the results I got. They make no sense. And so I would, I would find, find the, the, the session and I would find all the information I could that was logged about that session. I would replicate it to mm -hmm. see what, how they got to the results. And then I would go through, you know, debug it as people in software engineer go. And they're like, okay, okay, here it reached the model. And this is what the model says. And the model was a black box. Mm -hmm. I had no way of knowing how the model arrived to that decision. And to me, it was super frustrating because it doesn't, people think of machine learning as software because it, it's, kind of replaces software mm -hmm. in a way, but, and it's also ones and zeros like software. 
So they think, oh, it's deterministic, like self No, it's not. You know, so like it, it doesn't have the same properties. It has to be debugged differently. And to me, it was really frustrating to find that roadblock. And, and I didn't even know. I looked for it and figured out, how do I do this? What is this called? You know, and I couldn't find it. And it wasn't until I found a book, I think in, in 2018, I found a book about it. And it said, I, I don't know if it was called or it said interpretable machine learning, but I was like, okay, this is what it's called. And I got obsessed with it because I realized I had found a problem worth solving. I had pro- I found that AI wasn't as perfect as people were talking about it as it was, you know, because back in 2017, 18, 16, everybody was AI, AI. And it was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> there was nothing it couldn't hype. do, right? <laughs> there was a lot of hype on it. And I had found something that, and, and I, I have realized the dirty truth about it. And, um, and, and it was good, you know, it was good to find. And I, I, I thought it, it kept me driven I, I'm into finding other ways to kind of circumvent the problem. And, can, and can I maybe, found them. Can you, sorry, maybe describe those, those other ways, like in giving some examples, because we're still kind of the, talking about the abstracting of making things explainable and interpretable and transparent. Mm-hmm. But can you get, maybe explain just one or two techniques briefly of how we can do to, better understand those models. Okay, I'll give you an example. Like I, working on a project for, I think it was credit rating. Yeah, something like that. It was for credit rating. So I had to, you know, like banks are, you know, in some jurisdictions, not all, are supposed to give you a reason for rejecting a loan mm-hmm. to, to the end user. Because it's something that is potentially life-saving. You know, it can either help you Buy a, buy a house or not. So I, I was working with, with data for, 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 for lending purposes. And I was trying to figure out how, how do I understand what the model is seeing? You know, how do I understand how it's arriving to this issue? What, what model was it? Was it a simple model or a deep learning model? Um, no, it, it, it wasn't a simple model. I think it was an XGBoost. Okay. It's an XGBoost. So um, it, it be ensemble decision tree. And so I was trying to figure out what are the components, what is taking into account the most, and I started to realize it's it's this variable, it's this other one. This variable is problematic because you know, like it, it's unfair, you know, towards people like younger because they don't have enough working years of experience. So it's penalizing them for that rather their, you know, their ability to pay back loans. So. I, I found that problem, and then I uh, applied a, a, a fairness framework to it, and and that's also part of the toolkit of interpretable uh, machine learning, and uh, I improved the outcomes so that they weren't unfair towards people, but they were still making money to the bank. Okay. So I I thought well the way people have been looking at it is all wrong. It says all the answers are in the data. Yeah, but then you you give all the data to the model and let the model figure it out, but there's some things the model doesn't know. It doesn't have a context for the data. You as a human, it doesn't know, you know, that this is unfair towards young people because they have this, this other variable is, is utter nonsense. It's actually creating a lot of noise and the model can't separate the signal from the noise easily with, 
these other variables. So I, I there's a lot of things that you can do as a practitioner to kind of um, release the burden from the model. Uh, you know, if you're if you're data centric in in your approach, which is okay, you're 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 not just doing EDA to the data. That's fine, but you're going beyond that. Once you give it to the model, you're you're also interpreting the results to change your your perception about what the model's doing to then adjust the data coming in so that it any kind of issues you found are corrected. So okay, so you you don't change the model once you found or understood what the issue is, for example, a fairness issue, you don't change the model, you would go back, change the data to then change the way the model is trained. You might, you might. There's you might. <laughs> you might. Um, the fairness is applied and a lot of mach interpretable machine learning techniques are applied on three levels. You have pre-processing, things that you do to the data, in-processing, things that you do to the model, and then you have post-processing, things you do to the output of the model. So you could apply fairness fixes on any level. You could apply robustness on any level. You could, you could make things more transparent on mm -hmm. all three levels. You know? How do you make things more transparent? Yeah, I mean, if you do feature selection, you're, you're making things more interpretable you know, because the, the fewer features, the more interpretable it's going to be. And, and the model itself can come up with ways of doing that. If you have regularization, you're also going to make the model more interpretable. Okay, okay, I see. No, that makes sense. But I, something that I'm always wondering is, are we ever going to be able to really understand, for example, big models like XGBoost or deep learning? Like, obviously, with those methods, we think we understand better what they're doing or where one issue is. But do you think one day we'll be able to completely understand deep learning models like, oh, this model is actually thinking like this, this, and this. I mean, as clearly as we understand the linear regression, do you think that's something that no. we will be able to achieve one day? No, no, no. no that's that's not the point, though. I mean, I there there are certain people in, especially in academia, that think you know we should toss a lot of the deep learning techniques if they're not linear, <laughs> throw them out the window, right? I'm I'm not. I'm an extreme person in that sense. The, the school of thought I subscribe to is the one of post hoc interpretability. And what that means is basically we're okay with interpreting things as they come out with the model. We don't have to understand how the model makes the decisions, you know, and each mathematical operation. You know, you can't, we can't take the, the thousands of parameters or tens of thousands or billions or trillions of parameters in a neural network and, and try to understand what each one does. That's ridiculous. But I mean, what I equated to is a human, you know, like after all AI, it's trying to mimic in many ways the, 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 the what a human does. I mean, at least that's the aspiration, right? Or it's tr at least trying to replace human decision-making, okay? And humans aren't transparent. We're, we're, we're completely opaque machines. So if, if I need to know mm -hmm. how you made a decision, I will ask you, and you might lie, you know? 
you know, or you might tell me some version of it, you know, and miss out. Or you might, you might not even know exactly how you made the decision. You think exactly, even myself. So when we, when we wonder, you know, how we arrive to a decision or anything, we're, we're telling a story and, and that's what we're trying to get from the model, a story. It, it might not be perfect, but there's some semblance of the truth in it, especially if we use techniques to minimize that, mm. you know, it, it gives us the wrong version. Like, I'll give you an example. Like, there's this method in interpretal machine learning called Lime. One of the problems with Lime, as well as many, is that they're, they're permutation-based uh, methods. So they'll make a lot of permutations and, and they have a random number generator somewhere as do a lot of machine learning mm -hmm. methods. So that, that makes things inconsistent. But how do we get rid of these inconsistencies in machine learning? We do it many times and we average things out for the same reason we do cross-validation. We can do that with interpretal machine learning. So if we, if we take you know, like 10 results from Lime, from the explanation of one thing, and they average out to something, they're going to be closer to the truth They're than a single, yeah. yeah, or doing a single one, you know? So, okay. so, so the idea is like, train any model that you want, and then our interpretable ML finds technique that will help us better understand models, whether they are complex or simple, you will find technique to better explain how they make decisions. But the school of thought is not use simple models. It's like use any model that you want. Human is complex, so we need complex models as well. And then yeah, the the those tools will help us better understand how those models behave, I guess. Well, uh, there's a caveat there. Not every problem needs a complex model. No. Only complex problems need a complex mm -hmm. model. Yeah, if you have a simple problem, you know, maybe linear regression will do. And, and that should be fine. I, I often say simpler is better, right? And especially yeah. in industry, if you yeah. Yeah, don't need to overcomplicate things, right? Um, problems in industry, I mean, companies are already complex like this, having to understand all the data, how the company operates. So if you start with deep learning models, then it's just not the way to go. You should try simpler yeah. model first and then obviously increase complexity if your simple models are not good enough. Yeah, absolutely. So I've got two questions on your career before we finish the episode. Mm -hmm. The first one is, well, you already had quite a long career. You've been there for a while. You work with data for a while, although you've been called a data scientist for only a few years. You've been there for actually a much longer time. So if you had to redo your career again, are there things that you would have done differently? Hmm. Yeah, there were times in which I, 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 I didn't get out of my comfort zone and I would have learned new techniques that I learned now earlier if I would have got out of my comfort zone. So I would definitely tell myself, to my younger self, like for the longest time, I, I don't know, was I afraid of pandas? Because I, I, I mean, I, I knew Python, but, and I knew pandas was cool, but I was like, I don't know. <laughs> so I, I should have taken those leaps early on, you know, because I wouldn't have been able to, you know, just as I have later on, you know, 
I didn't take a long time in learning pandas, but what I'm saying is it would have been useful early on uh, rather than the approach I was taking of using, you know, base like Python libraries, dictionaries, and so on to do what is pandas are very simple operation. Another advice I would give is perhaps the realization that I was more of a data person. So I probably would have accelerated some of the things I did later on, like studying statistics. I would have done it earlier because it would have been useful for me. And it's also give me a, a change in my mentality. That was, it's good to have a, a focus on engineering. Software engineering principles are good, but I still had that very naive outlook on, 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 on everything being deterministic. And I think that would have helped me change that or nudge it a little bit in a different direction. Okay, so one, one last question now. If you had one advice, not to yourself, but to other people who want to progress in their career, like just one advice, what, what would it be? It's mm, a tough one. One advice to progress career. Well, I think the most important thing is to explore, to seek your passion. A lot of people, I feel they get into this, especially now that there's so much buzz or maybe as, uh, as of a few years in, in AI, they're like, oh, deep learning, deep learning. And they're, they're just like, like kids tossing themselves into the deep end of the pool, you know, mm -hmm. uh, not realizing they'll drown in it. You know, it's, it's not a good thing to do, especially if it's not their passion. They're getting into it for the wrong reason. I think it, ultimately it's, it's all about having passion for data. You know, someone that's a carpenter doesn't get into carpentry because they want to work with all the cool, like, electrical tools, you know? <laughs> they, they get into it because they like making things out of wood, you know? Mm -hmm. So if you like making things out of data, then maybe data science is for you, right? I, I think ultimately it's all about that. And, and if, if, the, if the passion is misplaced, like, for instance, maybe the person really has a passion for robotics, but it's channeling, channeling it through machine learning. Well, maybe they should just go ahead and start learning, I don't know, reinforcement learning or something that is really connected to that in electronics and, and so on. I think there, there, is, there are niches. Data science is so big. There are niches that are very specific and, 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 and very interesting in their own right. And people should realize early on what they are, but they won't realize that till they allow themselves to explore So don't don't be programmed by buzzwords and what an influencer told you. Just uh, explore enough different kinds of data and enough different kinds of engineering to arrive to what you're passionate about. Well, Serge, thank you so much. That was actually very interesting. Yeah, it was great to have this conversation with you. Have a good day and hope to see you very soon. Yeah, likewise. Likewise. Thank you.